peace um the um international day of peace which is to be um celebrated on the 21st of september this is the un united nations international day of peace and we shall talk a little bit about that about the efforts uh for peace um uh, as well as where we are uh, in terms of that peace and we shall talk a little bit about the current um conflicts in the world especially ukraine and uh, and how united nations has actually done to establish peace um uh since its establishment the second segment which we shall start at around 8:15 am is um uh, is a is, is a topic which is uh, related to health and it's about researchers findings of a possible link of mitochondrial function to the development of schizophrenia so those are the two topics of uh, the day we have a packed show um do stay tuned we will be live until 9 a.m. and on that note a very warm welcome um uh, brother usman manan how are you assalamu alaikum peace be on you i'm good alhamdulillah uh, by the grace of god how are you today peace be on you as well yes absolutely very good um 4th of september uh, you know the another year has almost flown by and we are already officially in autumn yes that was again too too quick the summer always goes uh, yeah it goes so fast absolutely that I was just yeah, about yeah. to actually uh, if you're speaking about the summer this coming week it's going to be summerish <laughs> summerish yes i mean the, the last uh, yeah. present from the summer the last uh, remnants really of the hot summer week coming up yeah. I, i think today is going to hit 30 degrees as well yeah, yeah. so uh, be prepared i mean be ready to enjoy it yeah absolutely but, uh, it is it is a bit too fast for me that the summer has gone and uh, autumn is coming and i hate the winter so much i hate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well bra- bra- brace for that because the it's now around the corner but yeah you're absolutely right about summer unfortunately you know it just uh, we we wait for summer and then you know it comes and just goes um just like that and uh, many schools are opening today some uh, obviously another, another bad news <laughs> <laughs> for, <laughs> well bad news for some good news for some i guess yeah a lot of children will be um uh, will be going back to school with mixed uh, mixed feelings after a long break uh, i certainly didn't find it easy to go back to school after some holidays so i can totally relate to what you're uh, what you're saying there right okay let's start with the headlines appearing um in the newspapers this morning So um following up on last week's news about crumbling concrete in schools the guardian reports that a briefing from the treasury that schools would not receive additional funding for repairs despite Jeremy Hunt saying earlier that the government would spend the money needed to fix the issue the paper says the chancellor is accused of abandoning children disrupted by the concrete crisis in schools the paper reports the briefing was that any finding to fix buildings would come from the department for education's existing budget for buildings and not from additional funds the i has a similar lead saying hunt was to make schools safe at any cost but there's no new money 
The paper reports he is under pressure from his own MPs to repair schools affected by crumbling concrete. The paper reports that last year's leaked emails showed the Department of Education asking the Treasury for £13 billion in extra cash for schools building repairs. Hundreds of schools still in the dark over safety fears read the front page of the Times. It notes that ministers are facing demands to speed up inspections of schools after acknowledging it could take months to understand the full extent of the problem. The Daily Mirror has an exclusive interview with Labour leader Keir Starmer, who promises not to increase income tax in what it says is a major election promise. We will do nothing to increase the burden on working people, whether it comes to tax or anything else, he tells the paper. Sunak Yields on onshore wind farms reads the headline on the Daily Telegraph's lead in keeping with the recent run of stories about disagreements within government on green issues. Rishi Sunak is set to overturn the ban on building new onshore wind farms to stave off a rebellion from Tory MPs, according to the paper. The Daily Mirror leads on a dramatic tenfold rise in the number of council employees given permission to work from overseas. The figure has risen from 73 in the year 2020 to 2021 to more than 700 last year, it reports. The paper rep- the story is based on the freedom of information requests submitted to local authorities by think tank, the Taxpayers Alliance. And finally, a piece about Russia's financial position leads the Financial Times, with it reporting that Chinese lenders stepped in to extend billions of dollars to extend to Russian banks as Western institutions pulled out in the year following the invasion of Ukraine. It's based on research carried out for the paper by the Kiev School of Economics. Domestically, the paper reports the Irish government is taking legal co- legal advice over a court challenge against a controversial UK legislation which would offer an amnesty for crimes committed during the conflict in Northern Ireland. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. We shall now take a very quick break and when we come back, we'll continue with uh, what some of the other papers are talking about. Do stay tuned. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. The time is 7 10 a.m. and today is Monday, the 4th of September 2023. You're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Usman Manan. Um, 
A reminder of the two stories uh, that two topics we shall cover today. So the first one is about peace and UN's International Day of Peace. And we shall go into a little detail about what's happening around the world. And we will speak to a couple of experts on that issue, especially around the conflict in Ukraine at the moment, which is actually um, a major flashpoint uh, affecting um, peace um, in the world. And the second topic is about researchers' findings of possible link of mitochondrial function to the development of schizophrenia. So those are the two topics. We've got a back show. We've got a, uh, quite a few experts coming in. So please do stay tuned until 9 a.m. if you can. We, we are, uh, for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, talking about the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. And there is uh, one headline which... Uh, uh, caught my eye and which is about poverty um, and uh, this news is actually carried by The Guardian. It says that more children are expected to arrive at UK schools this month um, or this week, I should say, with dirty clothes and hair. And this is um, because of uh, rising poverty. So almost three quarters of schools, school staff polled have seen a rise in hygiene poverty and expect to see more. 72% of school staff think, according to The Guardian, that there has been an increase in hygiene poverty in their schools in the last year, according to a poll of 500 school staff. And 71% of them expect that this will arise further at the start of the school year this month. Dirty uniforms and PE kits, unwashed hair and unclean teeth were the most common signs staff questioned in June had actually seen. Julie McCulloch, uh, the Director of uh, Policy at the Association of Schools and College Leaders, said hygiene poverty is linked to very high levels of deprivation as families struggle with the cost of things like washing machines, energy bills and clothes. Many schools routinely help out by discreetly washing clothes and providing items of uniform. This has long been the case, but has become more of an issue following the pandemic and cost of living crisis and as more families struggle financially. The level of child poverty in the UK is utterly unacceptable and the government must do more to tackle the problem. The poll carried out for the charity The Hygiene Bank and the cleaning brand Small defines people as being in hygiene poverty when they are caught between being able to heat their home, paying their bills, buy food or keep clean. Some of the school staff said that they had personally washed uniforms and PE kits for children at home and handed out laundry detergent for families in need. In the survey conducted by the market research firm Attest, 72% of school staff said pupils affected by hygiene poverty were experiencing low self-esteem. 53% said these pupils were isolated or left out by others in class, and 50% said that they had seen a negative impact on their mental health. 26% had seen absenteeism as a result of hygiene poverty. One respondent said students are often left with no desk partner in class, makes it awkward for staff members to deal with the situation. Students are often faced with working alone. Other students make nasty comments in front of the class to single them out. Another respondent said that they had a feeling of powerlessness, that they were unable to do more. Sarah Smith, the executive head teacher of St. Cuthbert Catholic Academy, a primary school in Blackpool, 
said we have been in we have seen an increase in students coming to school with unwashed uniforms and we know that this has an effect on their mental health health and overall well-being which in turn will have a negative impact on their education small in collaboration with the hygiene bank hopes to raise 25 25000 pounds to expand its suds in schools initiative which provides mini laundrettes to 25 extra schools so more families families in need are provided with clean clothes a very very sad and dismal situation indeed um especially you know if you consider that we are the fifth largest fifth of the sixth largest economy in the world and we have um you know these poverty issues in 2023 uh, very very unfortunate situation there uh imam yeah. usman minan um anything that caught your eye this morning uh yes um there is uh, <clears throat> some news about the new hulas rules uh not about the rules but sadi khan uh hits back at criticism of the london hulas expansion um he said that the scheme which was expanded to cover all of greater london on tuesday uh, it will charge more polluting vehicles 12 pound 50 a day and is the largest clean air zone in the world however the strategy aimed um has been divisive um khan has defended the policy in an article and cited government figures that show air pollution is causing between 28000 and 36000 early deaths nationwide every year uh, about 4000 of these deaths uh, are premature deaths in london and he wrote that the conservatives have overseen 13 years of decline with soaring rents and mortgages devastated public services sky high bills and the highest tax burden on working people in a generation and they have nothing to offer that's why they are desperate to conf- uh, confect a bogus war on the motorists division is both their strategy and overriding priority and then he further says regrettably um, fostering this type of demanding politics is more important to rishi sunak right now than the harm being done to our children's lungs by air pollution or the decline forced on our economy because of their recklessness and incompetence and he says that my objection is not to good faith debate but to the tories sowing discord and division in a desperate attempt to distract from the mess they've made of our country so ulus has ulus uh, was developed by boris johnson when he was mayor but was implemented by sadiq khan his successor it initially covered central london and was expanded in uh, 2021 in july the high court ruled a further expansion can go ahead after five conservative led councils had challenged the proposals rishi sunak the prime minister has previously said it is not the appropriate time to expand the scheme as families struggle with the cost of living but sadiq khan wrote the government has long recognized that clean air zones are one of the most effective tools we have for tackling air pollution in london um it is clear that the conservatives obsession with london's ulas has nothing to do with the merits or demerits of the scheme and everything to do with their desperate attempt to cling to power by trying to weaponize green issues ulus was originally conceived by a tory mayor and is similarly to other clean air zones being rolled out across the country with backing from the government it is based on rock solid science that that is widely accepted both around the world and here at home 
So Sadiq Khan, the former Labour MP for Tooting in South London, said the expansion means 5 million more Londoners will now breathe clean, cleaner air. And he added, 9 out of 10 cars seen driving in our outer London on an average day already meet the strict emission standards and their drivers will not have to pay the charge but will see the benefit of clean air. The EULAs will also help to tackle climate change and congestion. So there's a, a tiny conflict going on between Saad Khan and Rishi Sunak where his claims are that, I mean, uh, everything... Rishi Sunak does have a valid point that mm. the, with the cost of living and so many people are struggling because of the EULAs. Mm. Uh, so many, um, you know, really good cars have to be sold just because mm. they're slightly older and they're, they're diesel cars, they, they're not EULAs compliant. Mm. Um, and uh, Saad Khan's point is also valid. Mm-hmm. That it is definitely helping, and uh, I mean, he did give some numbers that about twenty-eight to thirty-six thousand people mm-hmm. um, are dying, and the cause, or maybe one cause, or a small part of that cause, is the air pollution. It's the emissions, yeah. But mm-hmm. um, it yeah, is also a, debatable. A, but exactly, it's a tough one, really. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, looking at the commoners. Everyone is adapting. At the end of the day, you don't have a choice. Yeah, you don't have a choice. Um, yeah. There's also some news going on that people, um, I forgot the name, it's a group. They call themselves Night Riders. Hmm. They go around at night cutting the cameras, new Euless cameras, which hmm. have been set up. They, yeah, just, been. they have a cord sticking out. All you need to do is just cut that, hmm. and uh, the camera doesn't work anymore. Hmm. So they've been going around cutting those. One person, he cut the whole camera off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, people are going around, you know, protesting, obviously, which is not... Um, this is uh, not against right. Islam. Absolutely. It's against, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the decent way to hands. protest. Yeah. Uh, but that shows how people are desperate and they they can't afford... A lot of people can't afford this this Euless expansion at the moment. Mm. So there's points on both both sides. Correct. And there is some government funding available as well um, to, to transition. And But but I totally get your point. Uh, yeah, this, you know, these are tough times. But again, yeah, uh, like you said, there are arguments on both sides. Mm. Uh, in other news... Um, COVID uh, testing is uh, coming back this uh, winter. Um, according to NHS, it's going to be scaled up um, because the scientists have warned last month that the UK was nearly flying blind when it comes to COVID because many of the surveillance programs that were in place at the height of the pandemic have actually been wound down. The UK Health Security Agency, UKHSA, has confirmed that it is planning to boost testing and surveillance as winter approaches, according to The Guardian. The announcement has been made as schools and universities in England prepare for the return of students this week. After the summer break, employees head back to work and indoor gatherings become more common factors that are known to increase the risk of respiratory infections, including COVID. Professor Stephen Riley, the Director General of Data Analytics and Surveillance at UKHSA, said planned scaling up of testing and community surveillance for the winter season when health pressures usually rise is in progress and UKHSA will make a further announcement regarding community surveillance plans for this winter shortly. Protecting the public from COVID-19 remains one of our top priorities. We continue to monitor the threat posed by COVID-19 through a range of surveillance systems and genomic capabilities, which report on infection rates, hospitalizations, and the risks posed by new variants. 
The UK HSA announced last week that the autumn COVID and flu vaccination program in England was being brought forward to September to ensure that the most vulnerable are protected as the winter draws nearer. A new variant, a new variant, BA. 2.86, which has been detected in a number of countries around the world, including the UK, the US and Denmark, is probably behind the shift. The variant is being closely monitored because it contains a large number of mutations that might help it evade immune defenses, although experts say that little is currently known about how big an impact it may have. Professor John Edmonds of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine said the discovery of the variant in a number of countries in a short space of time with was one reason for concern. Another is the large number of genetic differences compared with other Omicron subvariants. It is definitely concerning. There's no question about that. He said the good news is we haven't seen it suddenly take off anywhere. Edmund said there were still many unknowns about the variant, making it difficult to assess how much of a risk it posed, including whether it would cause more severe disease than other variants in circulation. One reason for that, he said, is that there was less data available. Our surveillance has been much reduced, so we are slightly blinded compared to where we've been in the past, he said. If you compare it to where we were with the Omicron, it's really very different in terms of just the quality of our surveillance. So that was, um, again, news uh, that was that's carried by The Guardian this morning and talks about uh, this new variant of COVID. Right. And on that note, we shall take a quick break. But when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about peacekeeping, the the International Day of the UN International Day of Peace, um, as well as the peace efforts um, that have been um, um, ongoing uh, around the world um, uh, over the last uh, over the existence of United Nations, I should say. But we shall focus more on the current events, um, uh, especially current events um, which are affecting global peace, like the war in Ukraine. So uh, do come back and we will talk. We have a lot of guests um, uh, to speak to throughout the duration of the show. So when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about peace and where we stand today. Life of Muhammad, peace be upon him. High moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth, and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather, and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father, Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, 
and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one, but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 4th of September 2023. The time is 7.30 a.m. And we are about to delve into the first topic of this morning, which is about peacekeeping and the United Nations International Day of Peace. So 21st September marks the International Day of Peace, a day which is observed globally. Declared by the United Nations General Assembly as a day to instill peace by adhering to 24 hours of non-violence and ceasefire. This year's theme is Actions for Peace, our ambition for the global goals. The aim of this theme is to recognize ways in which peace is fostered individually and collectively. This in turn will enhance the sustainable development goals of the United Nations and create a peaceful world according to United Nations. This year's uh, summit will take uh, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals Summit will take place between 18th and the 19th of September 2023. The objectives of the uh, these goals is again to promote peace through protecting human rights as well as caring for our planet, um, justness uh, by fighting inequality and championing in, uh, inclusivity. 
as well as eradicating violence from around the world. Interesting, 2023 this year also marks the 75th anniversary of both the United uh, Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide that were adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1948. Right, so um, that uh, with that uh, sort of background laid, um, what we see around the world, unfortunately, is um, is anything but peace. I think it would be fair to say that, um, uh, you know, in terms of the collective um, world, when we see there's uh, there's a lot of commotion individually as well. There's um, this commotion around the world. There is uh, also we talk about sustainable development goals. There's a cost of living crisis in the West, and there is abject poverty with with millions really um, dying of hunger still every year. But we will focus uh, in the next forty five minutes or so on the peacekeeping efforts or the lack of peace in the world at the moment. And um, we thought that the best way to do that would be focus on the current conflict in Ukraine. To talk more about that, I spoke earlier with an expert um, who is a regular on our show, Dr. Afsal Ashraf. He is um, uh, he teaches um, at the School of Politics and International Relations at the Loughborough University. He's also an expert on religious extremism, ideology global security and conflict. He spent over 30 years in the UK Armed Forces as a senior officer as well. Let's listen in to what he had to say when I spoke with him earlier. Dr. Ashraf, let me start by asking you, um, do you think the West is is helping the situation by arming and rearming and more arming um, Ukraine? Uh, or do you think this is now time for both sides to to have a have a bit of a reflection and think where we're headed and maybe do something different well i think the time for reflection um, has always been there i think reflection should have taken place before this um conflict started um and it appears that uh it hasn't, and it appears that the conflict has been in—it's been in gestation for a long time. The, the mention of Putin does uh, does uh, make a lot of people cough, so that's why <laughs> we understand. <laughs> right. So, well, yeah. I, I think that um, it is an emotional reaction. Um, <laughs> sure. the, the problem here is exactly that there is a, a very um, confusing um, and inconsistent mixture of what we call realist thinking power politics on both sides uh, and um, emotional reactions uh, for public consumption. So this whole uh, business started um, many years ago with NATO's continuous expansion eastwards um, towards the Russians. The Russians initially, uh, after the Cold War, uh, wanted to join NATO, of all things. They wanted a peaceful existence, but they weren't um, allowed um, to do so not Um, as an equal. Uh, They were allowed to do so as a subordinate partner, just like the Europeans, but not as an equal to the Americans. And and so this is uh, about, if you like, um, national ego. It -hmm. is about power politics. uh, And the the conflict is being sold to the public 
uh, in fairly understandable emotional terms. So what we have here is a situation uh, a year and a bit ago where um, uh, 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 the Russian forces um, invaded uh, Ukrainian territory, which <clears throat> by any measure is an illegal thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. Right. And so and people are taking advantage of that and trying to suggest <clears throat> that this is um, only because um, uh, President Putin uh, is a dictator uh, and an expansionist and has designs to conquer Europe. Now, of course, that narrative is uh, not entirely true, uh, as indeed the narratives that uh, Russia has put out um, to suggest that um, <clears throat> it was doing a special operation only uh, to... to um, uh, send a lesson to the government, which was a Nazi government and, and so a threat to Russia. So the point here is that uh, if we don't um, uh, have uh, a reflection which leads to a radical change of strategy, then we will get uh, a lot more of what we have had, perhaps and very likely in a worsening situation. What we've had uh, is um, the Russians uh, uh, fighting the Ukrainians and both sides causing horrendous casualties yeah. to the other. And the um, uh, allocation of weapons by the West to support the Ukrainians only makes uh, sense uh, in both realist terms and in ethical terms if that is matched by a realistic strategy of victory. The problem here, of course, is that President Putin has made it abundantly clear that if there is uh, uh, any realistic um, uh, 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 option or realistic situation where he yeah. is going to fail or he's going to lose, he's going to use the nuclear option. Yeah. Do you think all of this misinformation from both sides and the weapons that Ukraine have received are delaying the possibility for both parties to come to peace talks? First of all, I don't think this is what I would describe as misinformation. Of course, there is a lot of misinformation, disinformation, uh, you, you know, it's put out by both sides. There's yeah. a lot of propaganda, there's selective information. But the danger here is that this is what uh, both sides believe. And what happens in warfare, and it's something that most people don't appreciate, and something I learned when I was involved in wars in the Middle East, and, and that is that the propaganda that both sides put out mm -hmm. um, it starts off uh, as propaganda, as disinformation, as misinformation. But uh, the victims of those propaganda are the propagandists themselves. They start to believe their own propaganda narrative <laughs> uh, and the other side doesn't. Uh, and that's why I think we have a significant problem. Uh, there are many people on both sides um, uh, believing that each side is winning. Okay. And, and, and as long as that is the situation, there is no incentive for peace. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, um, yes, if you continue to arm um, uh, both sides, if they continue to arm themselves either th uh, through proxy armament of the West or in Russia, uh, buying armaments 
and, and uh, escalating its own production, which is far superior in, in numerical terms of artillery shells and other things uh, than the West's, uh, then that sustains the war. And what we get is just casualties uh, as um, Europe has had over the last few hundred years uh, where people, the soldiers, are seen just like ammunition, yeah. as expendable. Um, and uh, nowhere in the world have we had uh, so many people killed in conflicts than we have in Europe. And this is a, a big problem uh, because what we are seeing, um, what we're detecting in across the world, is that people are getting fed up. Um, the First and Second World War, I was talking to an African leader um, a few months ago, and, and he said, you know, you, uh, the West took uh, our people in the First World War. Uh, we were enslaved anyway, but they took them to fight in a war in Europe, and most of them never, ever came back. And in the Second World War, you again took our people. And now the problem is that you might not take our people, but you will have we will have the fallout, literally and metaphorically, of that war. And indeed, many uh, countries are already experiencing horrendous yeah. problems leading to the loss of life because of the sanctions which have affected food supply, which have affected energy, which have affected many other things. Uh, and where you have countries in the, uh, in the non-aligned world, in the third world, as it's sometimes called, or the global south, that are already very brittle in terms of their sustainability, this um, uh, little game that is being played in Europe between the West, uh, the European and American West, and the Russian West. Don't forget that the Russians see themselves, uh, whether the, uh, the, the Europeans like it or not, as Western. This little um, a tiff that is going on is a very dangerous and painful thing where that the rest of the world, the majority of the world, is paying a huge price for, having already paid a massive price during yeah. the Cold War, where millions of people died, uh, and the very label of Cold War uh, says a great deal about the way the West sees the rest of the world. It was cold for mm. most of the world. I lived through it um, in England. And it was a wonderful time, but millions, hundreds of millions of people died across the globe mm. in Asia, in Africa, uh, in uh, South America and many other places because the war, the Cold War was a proxy war. Mm. So I think we need to see this conflict um, in that sense. But coming back to your, um, and, and, and I, I paint this wider picture mm to um, uh, really answer your question as generally and, and as detailed as I can, hmm. this, this uh, feeding of conflict is not um, you know, through uh, armament um, uh, supplies, is not something uh, that sits alone. It is not just an issue between Europe the, uh, and America and Russia and Ukraine. It is something that is affecting and is likely to um, catastrophically affect the rest of the world. And that is one other reason why it is imperative that they stop this war 
unless they can guarantee either side a, a winning strategy, which they have failed to do. Um, if they don't can't do that, they need to stop it, and they need to come to some form of a political solution. Yeah, absolutely. That that has to be uh, the end game. That has to be um, the direction of travel. Unfortunately, we don't we don't see that at the moment, uh, Doctor. But um, how? Because of the escalations, now we've seen drone attacks deep inside Russian territory. That obviously is not um, is not going to go down well with the Russians. How close do you think we are to a potential miscalculation in this ever-escalating war? I think we're very close. Uh, we have been for a long time. The problem is that um, uh, I think what you're signaling with a miscalculation is that one of those red lines that your previous uh, speaker spoke about um, will be crossed. And if mm. they're crossed, uh, what we have is a clear statement uh, repeatedly put uh, by President Putin that um, he will escalate to full nuclear war. And there has been a debate um, uh, uh, by lots of people who really don't understand uh, the very specialist topic of nuclear warfare. Uh, for many people, nuclear bombs are just big bombs. They're not. And there's been talk about um, uh, about escalating using tactical nuclear weapons, which is a bit of a myth, um, because there is no um, a law that says that uh, when you see a nuclear bomb going off, that is a tactical one. Um, and, and another one that goes off which is slightly bigger, is not a tactical one. Yeah. And, and it will be foolhardy for either side, and I think both sides understand this, to uh, try yeah. to uh, dabble in yeah. nuclear warfare uh, in anything except an all-out exchange. And an all-out exchange uh, will be devastating for everybody. There will be no winners. So just one last question from me about everything you, you've just been explaining to our listeners who will broker the peace deal because if we imagine recently in in our own history in the united kingdom with the northern ireland and ireland it's still very raw you know it's only been 30 years effectively in a way we had canada that got them round the the table and then President, I think it was Clinton, uh, Clinton mm -hmm. then negotiated the kind of peace treaty. Do you think um, we need someone like Canada? Because obviously Putin is not listening to China and Ukraine are being, you know, they're, they're still at it. Who do you think, in everything you understand about this, who do you think will broker finally the peace deal? Well, I don't think you can have a, a peace deal um, uh, uh, brokered in this particular instance right. by a third party, because the, uh, and here again, it's yeah. nationalistic egos at place. Uh, right. okay. Interesting. Whatever deal um, uh, takes place will involve, will have to involve uh, certainly the United States and Russia. And I'm not sure that um, uh, why you don't believe that um, uh, Russia will not listen to China. Um, China uh, has always had a consistent policy of non-interference mm. in other states' affairs. Uh, it isn't happy, and it's made it clear that um, it does not see this war uh, as something that will produce an, uh, a, a good outcome. It has supported any effort for peace deals, 
Um, and I think the Russians have also um, indicated uh, fairly consistently that they are open to a deal. Um, what I think we have here is a problem where the Ukrainians, uh, and, and indeed we, we have a, a government that is in Ukraine that is highly uh, pro-American and reliant on American support. And there's this very strong mutual relationship uh, which um, does not want a, a peace deal without addressing uh, the, you know, uh, addressing the underlying problems. Yeah. And if you don't under, uh, address yeah. the underlying problems of NATO encroachment, mm-hmm. Ukrainian membership of NATO, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and many other things that... Mm-hmm. Uh, Crimea, uh, yeah. Well, Crimea, I think, can be, um, uh, if you like, set aside. Um, you, 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 with um, uh, deals of this nature, peace deals, uh, you, you mentioned... Um, uh, the, mm. the, the Northern Ireland peace process, very often when they're complex, it is difficult to get a comprehensive deal. So what they you, people do is they do um, uh, small steps, confidence-building measures that have a deal, maybe a ceasefire, uh, and, uh, and another phase. If that's successful, they move on to something else. And Crimea is something that can be um, put to one side. The, the sort of thing I think we do need to address is this uh, threat of NATO encroachment. Mm-hmm. The big problem is that um, uh, 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 the both sides, but particularly the West, is becoming increasingly entrenched. And now a public opinion has been stoked up and there is a, a big desire to make Ukraine a, a member of NATO. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you're going to do that, basically you're saying you're going to defeat Russia because Russia went to war. <laughs> because of that, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. What, we have, what we have to have is a radical rethink. And I didn't think I would ever say this, but um, <laughs> it seems to me the greatest hope for peace um, will, uh, will um, uh, depend on the new the presidential elections next year. And because President Trump has made it clear that he would um, go for a peace deal. Um, and he's one of the few people, even in the Republican Party. I thought party. I'd never hear that, uh, doctors, <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> Trump and peace in the, in the in the same sentence. But uh, no, thank you very much, uh, Professor uh, Afzal Ashraf. This was uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, excellent contribution there. Thank you so very much. Um, uh, we've enjoyed talking to you, and I'm sure yeah. our listeners enjoyed uh, talking to you as well. This is certainly the you know the other side of things that uh, generally we don't tend to hear on uh, on mainstream media, anyways. So I must thank you. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Peace be with you. So that was Dr. Afsal Ashraf, who um, teaches um, who who teaches at the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Loughborough. And he's also an expert on terrorism, counterterrorism, um, global security and conflict. And he was talking to us earlier about how the Ukraine war um, is actually um, not being contained. And this appears to be an ever escalating conflict. Let me now uh, go and um, and, uh, play a clip from the... Uh, address given by the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad. When he spoke um, a few months ago, earlier this year, at the International Peace Conference, 
and he also talked about the dangers of the war in Ukraine. Let's listen in. In a similar vein, an extremely dangerous consequence of the war in Ukraine has been the solidification of opposing political blocs and alliances and the rhetoric being used in international relations is becoming increasingly hostile on all sides. For example, much has been written about how Russia and China are forging closer ties, bonded by their mutual antagonism towards the West. The truth is that war often begets war. There are genuine concerns that the Ukraine conflict could spread or that other nations could be emboldened to abandon diplomatic efforts to resolve their disputes and resort to force. For example, the situation in Taiwan is becoming increasingly precarious as China seeks to assert its control. Hence, world leaders, the media, and others should not fall into the trap of thinking that the war in Ukraine can be easily contained. In this regard, the journalist Peter Hitchens recently wrote in a national newspaper about the decision of several Western countries to send their tanks to Ukraine. He wrote, if they, the tanks being given to Ukraine, cross into what Russia regards as its own territory, then do not be surprised by anything which happens. He continues, there is the real possibility that a large chunk of Europe might be turned into a radioactive graveyard and that American conventional relations for this, which will be furious and powerful, will make us a stage further into the world of horror, loss, flight, pestilence, and poverty, which always follows war. Regarding Russia and Ukraine, he says, two countries are in a furious grapple because their deep, hard, and unalterable interests conflict. This, the sane and decent policy for any outside power is to help push them into a lasting compromise. As the world did to France and Germany after 1945. Instead, we sent tanks. It is as if the fire brigade went about starting fires. Other commentators are reaching similar conclusions. During the recent interview, the renowned economist Professor Jeffrey Slash said, I contacted the White House at the end of 2021 and said there will be war unless the U.S. enters diplomatic talks with President Putin over this question of NATO enlargement. I was told the U.S. will never do that. That is off the table. Now we have a war that is extraordinarily dangerous and we are taking exactly the same tactics in East Asia that led to the war in Ukraine. We are organizing alliances, building up weaponry. He continues, the Chinese government said, please lower the temperature, lower the tensions. And we said, no, we do what we want. And now sent more arms, and this is the recipe for yet another war. 
and to my mind it is terrifying. Increasingly, academics, political experts and respected analysts are warning that we are approaching a grave period in the history of humanity. For example, the symbolic doomsday clock controlled by an international panel of some scientists which forecasts the likelihood of a human-made global catastrophe was recently turned to just 90 seconds until midnight, the closest to a global disaster it has ever predicted. The scientists stated that we are living in a time of unprecedented danger and warned that there is a significant risk of global war triggered either by accident, miscalculation, or even intentionally. As we ponder over such dire warnings, the obvious question is how can the world bring an end to the cycle of warfare and bloodshed that we witness today? The world is well versed in supporting victims and those suffering injustice, as is the case with the Ukrainian nations, nation at this time. Yet, it may surprise you to hear that Islam teaches Muslims to help not only the victim of the persecuted, but also the perpetrator and oppressor. Of course, this does not mean you provide the aggressor with the means of freedom to inflict further cruelties. Rather, to help an aggressor means to stop them from committing further brutalities and injustice. Whenever, uh, whatever wrongs are being committed by the Russian state, we must keep in mind the broader picture that if the war is not brought to an end, it will lead to a deepening global crisis with potentially catastrophic results. Opposing blocs will become further entrenched. Hatreds will become even more deeply rooted, increasing the likelihood of a world war. Hence, as they continue to support Ukraine as it defends itself, world powers should also be making every possible effort to end the war through peace talks and good faith negotiations. Otherwise, I fear the war will spread beyond Europe and eastwards towards Asia, and who knows where it will stop. For many years, I have warned of the risks of a full-scale world war and have spoken of how its deadly and destructive consequences are far beyond our comprehension. Having long warned of such a war, I take no satisfaction in the fact that we are moving ever closer to it and that others are now expressing similar sentiments and fears. Rather, I feel only grief and anguish as I see the world hurtling ever faster towards the terrifying world war in which the lives of millions of innocent people <coughs> will be lost or permanently destroyed. So that was His Holiness Hazrat Meza Masoor Ahmad, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, talking at the Peace Symposium earlier this year. 
Let's go straight to the 8 o'clock news. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. We've been talking about peace or the lack of peace in the world, uh, especially in relation to the Uni- United Nations International Day of Peace to be celebrated on the 21st of September. And um, We've been talking actually about current flashpoint um, or the war in Ukraine. And uh, we spoke earlier with uh, Dr. Afzal Ashraf. And uh, then we also played um, uh, an extract from the address of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, The address he gave um, uh, a few months earlier at the International Peace Symposium talking about the potential uh, fallout from the war in Ukraine and the escalations that are actually going on there. Um, we will now um, turn to the um, uh, to what Islam actually suggests in terms of establishing peace. And for that purpose, I spoke earlier with an imam within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Imam Samir Ahmad. Let's listen in to what he had to say. Uh, Imam Samar, um, we are obviously uh, talking about um, you know the this conflict in Ukraine, the escalations. There's lots of geopolitics, naked self-interest, egos, jingoism involved. You know, um, all of those bad words that you can that you can imagine. Uh, I, I was hoping to to understand from you what. Islamic concept of uh, of peace and justice. How and how important are these two intertwined, uh, intertwined? I should say, peace and justice within Islamic politics. Mm. Um, b- before speaking about what uh, Islam teaches us uh, in this regard, in regards to justice and peace, first we need to understand, and I'm sure uh, I, I've only just been listening in for the last couple of minutes, but I'm sure you've probably tackled that throughout the course of the show. But the root cause of the un- unrest that we see in the world today is actually due to the, a lack of justice found at mm. every level of society. And only by recognizing our creator, can we as mankind hope to establish true justice and usher in an era of individual, communal, and also global peace? 
Um, and another thing also that I want to mention uh, uh, before talking about peace and justice itself is that the main reason for the state of disorder that we see in the world today are the acquisition of personal gains in the name of God, the true fear of God disappearing from people's hearts, or even the denial of the existence of God Almighty whilst giving preference to worldly laws and ideologies. And I'll come back to this at the end as well. Um, despite being the creation of Allah the Almighty, we as man, we consider uh, Allah the Almighty's customs and system of justice and equity inferior to his man-made customs and systems of, uh, of justice. And like I said, I will be um, summarizing uh, with that point as well. Um, so just put, put, put a pin in that for, for a moment there. Sure. But the, 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 the most important thing that Islam teaches us in regards to justice is, is such a beautiful teaching. And I'm sure many of uh, your regular listeners uh, on Voice of Islam radio station will be well aware of this as well. And this is that, Very simple verse of the Holy Quran in which he states that, Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred. And what we need to understand over here is that when we look at justice, then whatever faith it might be, whatever religion it might be, whatever world government or any other kind of organization it may be, they will always take you to the point uh, of, of being just, right? That is the, that's the highest level in their, in their view and in their eyes. And that is that if someone does good to you, then, then do something similar to them, right? But Allah the Almighty, He has told us and He has taught us uh, in the Holy Quran and through the practice of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, that that's not the last step, that's not the pinnacle, that's actually the first step. That's the very first thing that you need to do. Then you need to go on to do good to others, better than what they've done to you. And then you take it one step further and you take it to, to, to treating them as you would treat your kindred. Just as a mother with a child, that is the kind of relationship that we should be having with, with people. And remember, this, when this verse was revealed, this was at a time when the, the Muslims were being persecuted. They were being, uh, it, uh, such barbaric actions were being uh, brought uh, against them. And this is the uh, injunction that uh, God Almighty gave to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that this is how you should retaliate. Yeah. That in the adl being justice, wal ihsani, the doing of good to others, and then one step further, that the giving like kindred. And you can only imagine that, how difficult this might be. But like I said, this is the, the injunction that uh, the Quran has taught us. And it's so important for us to actually keep this in our minds at all times, that whenever someone does something good to us, we don't just retaliate by giving them a, a similar uh, a, a gift which is similar. It also states in the Holy Quran that whenever someone gives you something, then you return it with something which is either of the uh, same um, uh, quality or same value or, or something which is even better. Yeah. And, and that's why we have this uh, Asalaamu Alaikum as well. You know this, this yeah. greeting that we give one another? Um, there's three, three versions of this. And if one gives you, uh, greets you in one way, then you greet him back in the same way, but then you take it one step further. You say that not just peace, but even more uh, of God's security be upon you as well. 
Um, I know you are coming towards the end of the show as well, so I am mindful of the time. Um, one thing that I do want to mention before I end is from um, His Holiness, um, in which uh, uh, the, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, Ahmed, and this is a lecture that he gave in York University in Toronto in Canada, um, titled Justice in a Just World. And towards the end, right before... Um, praying um, and, and leading everyone in prayer as well. He stated, and I like to quote this as well, that whether Muslim or non-Muslim, we should pursue the universal standards of justice outlined in the Holy Quran. As the Prophet of Islam may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, so beautifully stated, we must love for others what we love for ourselves. We must pursue the rights of others with the same zeal and determination that we pursue our own rights. We should broaden our horizons and look at what is right for the world, rather than what is only right for us. These are the means for peace in our age. And, and Daniel, I, I think you'll agree, this, this passage uh, taken from the speech of His Holiness, mm. this beautifully summarizes Absolutely. what we are lacking in the world today. Yeah. We, we, we see world governments just pursuing their own vested interests, mm different organizations doing the same thing as well we will never see peace and i can guarantee you this these are the words of his holiness as well we will, we will never see peace mm. until we like for others what we like for ourselves yeah. unless we that same zeal that same determination that we have to, to acquire whatever we need right when we don't do that for our neighbors and for our for, for other people then we will never see true peace and and with that uh, I, i'd like to end my my short uh, uh, the, the discussion here, and, and I think that uh, this passage of His Holiness is basically the summary of uh, of, uh, of not just my discussion here, but pretty much the whole show, because yeah. this is, in essence, what we are all in need of today. Yeah. So that was uh, Imam Samir Ahmed uh, talking to us uh, about the Islamic concept of justice the Islamic concept of the importance of justice in the establishment of peace, both uh, peace within um, um, peace within an individual, as well as peace in uh, in the society, peace within the family, as well as peace within the society. And with that, we bring this segment to a close. We will now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about something very, very different. So, in the second segment, we're talking, we're going to health, and we're talking about schizophrenia and new researchers' findings of possible link of um, mitochondrial function in the development of schizophrenia. And we'll talk to a couple of experts about that, so please do stay tuned.
أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show from the Southern Studios of Voice of Islam. We're about to delve into um, into science a little bit. So researchers at Rutgers and Emory University are gaining insights into how schizophrenia develops by studying the strongest known genetic risk factor. So when a small portion of chromosome 3 is missing, this condition known as 3Q29 deletion sy- syndrome, it increases the risk of schizophrenia by about 40-fold. Researchers have now analyzed overlapping patterns of altered gene activity in two models of 3Q29 deletion syndrome, including mice, where the deletion has been engineered in using CRIPSR and human brain organoids, um, organo, or genoids, or three-dimensional tissue cultures used to study disease. These two systems both exhibit impaired mitochondrial function. This dysfunction can cause energy shortfalls in the brain and result in psychiatric symptoms as well as disorders. Our data give strong support to the hypothesis that mitochondrial dysregulation is a contributor to the development of schizophrenia. this according to Jennifer Mull, who is an associate professor of psychiatry, neuroscience and cell biology at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and a co-senior author and a co-senior author of the study published in Science Advances. The interplay between mitochondrial dynamics and neuronal maturation is an important area for additional detailed and rigorous study, according to Professor Jennifer Mull. Right. Let's go now straight to our first guest for this segment, who is Dr. Musa Sami. Dr. Musa is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Nottingham, as well as a clinical psychiatrist. He's also the head of research at the Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. What's the difference between schizophrenia and other mental health disorders? So that's a fascinating question. And I heard your introduction to this, which gave a very good uh, overview of this topic. But essentially, in schizophrenia, it's a condition of recurrent psychosis. And what I mean by psychosis is a lack of contact with, with reality. And so what happens there is you can have, for example, hallucinations, which are a perception in the absence of a stimulus, such as hearing voices or seeing visions, or delusions, which are deep-set beliefs in the absence of evidence for them, or, as it was said, muddled thinking. Mm-hmm. So this is usually what is considered as psychosis. However, alongside that, you have problems in a number of 
different domains, such as you can have this regulation in terms of mood, you can have problems in terms of your thinking or what we call cognitive function. And what's really, really important, as it was being said, is a problem in terms of functioning. So day-to-day function, functioning in terms of um, work, academic functioning, self-hygiene, being able to take care of yourself, and daily chores. So that, that essentially is schizophrenia. It's a severe mental illness. It's different to um, depression, which is just has a mood component. And so um, schizophrenia is much more of a, uh, what we consider as a thought disorder. Mm-hmm. Is, is, that, is that okay? Yes, that's a very good explanation. Uh, another quick question. Um, what, is, it, is it likely that a person with schizophrenia would have other mental health issues as well? For example, if, if somebody has depression, he also has anxiety or maybe also a loss of appetite with it. Um, so does schizophrenia also come with like a bunch of mental health issues or is that uh, you can only have schizophrenia and you'll be fine with, with the rest? No, no, no. So actually the problem with mental illness is that um, the definitions that we've made are purely based upon symptomatology which means that the symptoms we experience rather than the um, underlying biology of the illness. And so what actually happens is that people don't just suffer with psychosis alone. They will suffer with other features alongside that, such as Mm -hmm. depression or anxiety. It's often seen in other what are called neurodevelopmental conditions such as autism or ADHD or learning disability. So it's never really, you can never really say it's just schizophrenia on its own. Mm -hmm. It comes with a host of other problems, but that's probably not because of the schizophrenia, but because of the way we define mental illness as a whole. Mm-hmm, interesting. And what kind of difficulties, what kind of complications or challenges do people face with schizophrenia um, in terms of their daily functioning or the quality of life? So I think the first thing to think about is that if you believe that, for example, you know, the FBI are chasing you mm-hmm. or that there's a conspiracy cooking against you or that your food is poisoned, or you're hearing voices telling you to um, hurt other people or kill yourself or various other um, voices that people can hear. That's going to affect you in that particular phase, right? And that's called the acute phase of illness. And that's when we often see people at their highest distress and when they need Um, sometimes hospitalization, medication, uh, calming measures, other treatment for their kind of agitated or aroused state. So that's the first thing. But there's also longer-term effects. (laughs) 
so if this happens and it often happens you know around the age of 20 and it keeps coming back then it can affect you know our universities our relationships it can affect our development at that formative period of life does that make sense and then mm-hmm. alongside that there's also the um, biological effect of recurrently having this condition which as i say can lead to um, both low mood or um, decreased cognition or um, thinking ability in terms of thinking flexibility and so that can also have an effect having said all of this schizophrenia can be very effectively treated mm-hmm. and it's important to remember that you know if somebody is suffering from these symptoms they should see a doctor get a relevant medical advice and these are things that we're quite used to treating and there are effective remedies available but what kind of remedies are people looking at if somebody listening in uh what should they expect is it medication is it tablets is it um, therapy yeah so I would break this down into what I often class as the bio psychosocial model and that means that we think about three different things we think about mm-hmm. the biology which is medication treatment essentially um, I think drug abuse can also exacerbate schizophrenia symptoms and so that's part of the biology as well to treat that mm-hmm. if that's going on alongside but equally important is the psychological effect and the social effect by psychological effect we can target that through uh, talking therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy and there are others But we can also um, think about the social situation that people find themselves in. And often optimizing that in terms of family accommodation, in terms of the stigma and discrimination that people experience is a very important aspect of the treatment that sometimes we overlook. Mm-hmm. Doctor, what are the actual risks of not taking medication if you have schizophrenia? So, medication, as I said, really helps in the acute phase mm-hmm. when people are very agitated or aroused. And if you don't take medication in that phase, then the distress will heighten. And if you are essentially living in an alternative reality that can be very dangerous hmm. isn't it you know so for example people can hurt themselves much more rarely they can hurt others they can be a risk or a danger in terms of their self care and be more predisposed to accidents and you know many various um accidents can happen you know fire setting mm-hmm. uh, walking into a lake 
all of these kind of things. <laughs> these are rare, but um, I have seen them in clinical practice. So essentially, so, uh, yeah. you would what you probably would be, would be best uh, would be family support and family ensuring that that particular patient is actually taking the medication that has been prescribed. That's really important. So I was just recently for two weeks in Pakistan in one of our hospitals running a clinic there. And I saw many people with schizophrenia over there. And the one thing I can tell you, just comparing that with what happens here, is that family support is just much higher. It's without question. Whereas in the West, perhaps, we have very atomized uh, family structures mm. and people are often without that support around them. And it makes a huge difference in terms of how the patient presents. You know, in, in Pakistan, I could see that patients were poor. They didn't have the medication or the resources for treatment, but they were still being actively engaged in the family. Mm. And that's not a... Um, I should say it's not a common uh, on the people of Pakistan or the people of the UK, mm. but it's more about how the society sure. is structured, and that's very important. Sure. Um, you also mentioned earlier that schizophrenia generally develops at around at around age twenty. Mm. Um, is that uh, always the case, uh, or um, and if that is so? there are absolutely no signs of anything like that until that age? So nobody is aware, even the patient himself or herself is, is not aware that they may potentially have something? So this is a really interesting question. Schizophrenia and psychosis and most serious mental illness occurs usually before the age of 40. There are some rarer cases where it happens at an older age, age group. Usually, it occurs after the age of 14 or 15. It's very unusual for schizophrenia or psychosis to present before that. And usually, it will have presented its first episode by the age of 30. Mm. The reason for this is not well understood, there's a very uh, important hypothesis called the neurodevelopmental hypothesis of schizophrenia, which is as the brain develops, it gets to a certain point where the underlying uh, susceptibility to the condition hmm. manifests. And that's why it's thought it usually occurs in this age. When it usually occurs, it starts with vague, non-specific symptoms, such as anxiety, social withdrawal, um, a little bit of depression, and perhaps saying slightly off the wall or bizarre things. But when it shows its first episode, which we sometimes call the psychotic break, that can be very alarming for both the individual and the family. It sure. seems to come out of nowhere. Right. 
can um would you say that uh, does the research suggest that um you would have schizophrenia or you wouldn't or can a condition like depression also develop into schizophrenia yes yeah, so there's something called the shift to schizophrenia so often people start off with a diagnosis of maybe bipolar disorder or <laughs> some kind of depression with psychotic features and by the age of 30 when it's happened a number of times we start realizing that actually this is schizophrenia so it's not as i say a well defined issue right from the start mm. so how important is is this recent discovery that we're talking about about um uh, uh, the, the linking genetics with schizophrenia so this is a fascinating paper that you've sent me what they've essentially done is they've taken one condition which is called 3q29 uh deletion on the chromosome mm-hmm. and they've reverse engineered that obviously not in humans they reverse engineered it in the lab uh, to make what are called um you know cell cultures and also they reverse engineered it to make ma- mouse cell lines with this condition so and what they found is that in both of these you know the cultures and the mouse cells the mitochondria which are the powerhouse of the cell which produce energy for our cells are not functioning as we would expect them to function and the fact is that we don't really know the exact mechanisms which cause schizophrenia we know there's a signaling problem and currently our treatment focuses on the signaling problem but we don't know what causes the signaling problem so this is a suggestion that it could be energy related can you hear me yes yes absolutely we're listening very okay. intently right sorry <laughs> i've i've been receiving some feedback so it might have been affecting my sure. conversation but the feedback's just gone okay so the um energy problem might be the primary problem in terms of schizophrenia that that's absolutely mm. fascinating um there are some limitations to this work right firstly very few people get schizophrenia from this particular 3q29 deletion secondly the 3q29 deletion is not just associated with schizophrenia it's associated with multiple other problems as well including autism ADHD mm-hmm. um uh, I think a small head which is called microcephaly learning disability and heart problems um so that's um you know <laughs> we we need to work out how this energy problem is associated with those conditions as well but it is I think a fundamental step forward there are a few conditions such as 3q29 there's another deletion as well I think on the 22nd chromosome called 22q11 where we know that there are very high rates of psychosis and schizophrenia 
And so um, I would have to say that for me, this is re really important work in thinking about what causes this problem. Excellent. Thank you so very much, Dr. Basa. This, this was uh, fascinating, very interesting. And uh, uh, thank you for breaking this down for us because, yeah, uh, we were in a, in a fix. I mean, when, when we read the article, we, we just didn't know what all of that meant. So, so thank you for breaking all of that down for us and for our listeners. Uh, really appreciate your, uh, your contribution to the show today. Thank you very much. Peace be with you. Okay, thank you. Waalaikum salam, peace be with you. So that was uh, Dr. Sami, uh, Dr. Musa Sami, who is um, a consultant psychiatrist and also the head of research at the Amelia Muslim Research Association. Um, Imam Usman Manan, yeah, very interesting um, discussion there with the um, with the two specialists there, and, and especially you, you know, the uh, in terms of. Um, uh, quite enlightening for me that uh, he's the doctor. Doctor Sami said that schizophrenia might not show itself um, even until the age of thirty. Yeah, um, obviously, like uh, we also mentioned earlier, that re realizing, um, recognizing the disease as early as possible is the best way or the highest chance uh, of of treatment. But I guess you would only recognize once you have it. I mean, if you if you mm -hmm. don't have it, then you don't have it, right? Yeah, I think let's see what this this research brings out. Uh, I think Dr. Sami and and um, Dr. Um, um, from uh, Indonesia, Dr. Dr. Johan, yeah, yeah. is also uh, very excited about this research. It seems like they themselves have uh, there is not much research on this, so they, mm. they seem to be excited that there is something new coming out which which we we can work on, uh, find new things. Because uh, if you if you heard the the, I mean the most common treatment for this is. Uh, what you would expect, you know, um, family support, yeah. some medication. But again, even Dr. Sami was emphasizing that the medication can help in the in the beginning stages. Yeah. But the main focus is on the family support, on the on the psychological treatment of the patient, yeah. uh, rather than using drugs uh, to, you know, kind sure. of, which will cause other issues. Yeah, the um, side effects. There is well. like mm. drugs like antidepressants, mm. which might get you. It, it don't. It doesn't really get rid of your depression. What it mm. does is. It suppresses some things mm. which cause that depression, yeah. but that causes another issue. Sure. Uh, maybe loss of appetite is, is mm. a side effect. So there's always a kind of a kind of a link, uh, or like a loophole, um, or side effects. Yeah, or absolutely. side effect with these things. Um, so I think maybe this one is is a big step that uh, mm. away from you know the general uh, treatment of, um, of of mentally treating the patient. This might be something which which can be a lot more effective. Sure. Yeah, fingers crossed. Absolutely. Um, any new development is exciting and hopefully this uh, helps develop, uh, this research helps develop some cure and and, um, mm. and and maybe some more knowledge and medication as well. This right. Is the, I mean, uh, this is the importance of research and um, we, we've, we've heard as all of us, um, uh, the head of the Muslim community mentioned so many times that researching and uh, is is uh, one of uh, one part of um, every MD Muslim, especially a student, that they shouldn't be satisfied with uh, with just you know, passing the exam. They need to look beyond. They need to look ahead of benefiting humanity. And uh, um, I think we also have a short clip of uh, how in the past Muslim scientists and Islam has played a major role in developing these uh, technology uh, technologies which we are using today to treating so many different diseases. I mean, mm. there's probably more diseases than, uh, I think, words I know. Mm. <laughs> so uh, let's listen into that clip 
and uh, let's see what uh, Islam has done uh, in in the contribution of science. Another allegation leveled against Islam by certain critics is that it is a backward and archaic religion or one that does not promote intellectual advancement. This is a lazy stereotype that is based on fiction rather than fact. <clears throat> it is a baseless allegation. The Holy Quran itself has signified the importance of education by teaching the prayer, the, Oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Where this prayer is a source of great help to Muslims, it also inspires them towards learning and advancing the cause of human knowledge. The truth is that the Holy Quran and the teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, inspired the works of generations of Muslims, intellectuals, philosophers, and inventors in the Middle Ages. Indeed, if we look back more than a million, millennium, we see how Muslims, scientists, and inventors played a fundamental role in advancing knowledge and developing technologies which transformed the world and remain in use today. For example, the first ever camera was developed by Ibn Hatham and his revolutionary work was recognized by UNESCO when he was declared as pioneer of modern optics. It is also interesting to note that the word camera is derived from the Arabic word camera. In the 12th century, a Muslim cartographer produced most extensive and accurate world map of the medieval times, which was used for centuries by travelers. Furthermore, in the field of medicine, many Muslim physicians and scientists made great discoveries and pioneered many inventions that remain in use today. Many of the surgical instruments were pioneered by Muslim physicians. Uh, a Muslim physician, Al-Zahrawi, in the 10th century. In the 17th century, an English physician, William Harvey, famously carried out what was considered as groundbreaking research regarding blood circulation and the functioning of the heart. However, it was later discovered that more than 400 years before, before Harvey's research, Ibn Nafis, an Arab physician, had already detailed the basic of pulmonary circulation in an Arabic textbook. In the ninth century, Jabir Ibn Hayyan brought about revolution in the field of chemistry. He invented many of the basic processes and apparatus still in uh, use today. The principle of algebra was first developed by a Muslim 
as was much of the theory of trigonometry. In the modern world, algorithms are the basis of modern computing technology, and they too were first developed by Muslims. The contribution of Muslims to intellectual enlightenment is still recognized. For example, a New York Times article published by their science reporter, Dennis Overby, mentions the role of Muslims, uh, Muslim polymath Al-Tusi. The author states, Al-Tusi, established, uh, Al-Tusi published many great works on astronomy, ethics, mathematics, and philosophy, marketing him as one of the great intellectuals of his age, uh, marking him as one of the great intellectuals of his age. <clears throat> he states, Muslims created a society that in the Middle Ages was the scientific center of the world. The Arabic language was synonymous which learning uh, with learning and science for 500 years a golden age that can among its credits for the precursors to modern universities hence from the outset islam emphasized the, the immense value of learning and pushing the boundaries of human knowledge since it was founded in 1889 the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has always promoted education amongst its members with the grace of Allah the very first Muslim Nobel laureate was an Ahmadi Muslim professor Dr. Abdul Salam an eminent physicist who was the Nobel Prize uh, who, who won the Nobel Prize for physics in 1979. Throughout his life, Professor Islam spoke of how Islam and the Holy Quran in particular was the inspiration and guiding light behind his work. In fact, he used to say that there were around 750 verses in the Holy Quran directly related to science and which enhanced our understanding of nature and the universe. So that was this uh, clip from His Holiness speaking at UNESCO and telling us about the advancement um, which Islam and Muslim scientists have contributed to. And uh, uh, since we are speaking about schizophrenia and mental health issues, uh, we also have another short um, Q&A of His Holiness where he has clearly uh, mentioned that uh, some mental his- mental health issues are uh, they are not kind of uh, you know real problems. They are just in our heads. Uh, they have to do with our own um, mental stability. So let's listen into what is what the question was and what the answer was. My question is: With the coronavirus pandemic, we have seen a massive impact on people's mental health, with depression and anxiety increasing. This has also affected many khudam. How would a khuzur recommend a khadim deals with these issues? Allah Ta'ala says, 
Allah is That remembrance, my remembrance and my zikr will satisfy your hearts. So, during these days, we should try to get closer to Allah Ta'ala. Eh? Offer our prayers fervently five times, if possible, in congregation. And also do some zikr, say Dhru Sharif, Istighfar, and seek Allah's guidance and help by walking. Then Allah Ta'ala will give you comfort and strengthen your heart. During this virus, those who are living close to me and even myself, I didn't feel anything wrong. I don't think it has, has, has left any bad effect on us. <laughs> we are okay. And you are also okay. You seem to be okay. Not, not that. Are you not okay? I'm okay. Then, yes, then. If you are okay, then. So, so, those who have something, then they should seek Allah's, guide, Allah's help. Right? And Allah Ta'ala will help them by offering their prayer. Be punctual and fervent in your prayer. And do some other zikr, drood shayf and istighfar and lahul of Allah quwwata illa billah and so many other prayers written in the prayer books. That will satisfy you. And yeah. remove all your anxieties as well. Jazakallah. And that was uh, another interesting answer from His Holiness, uh, may Allah be his helper. Um, that brings us towards the end of our um, show today. Uh, we have just one more small thing about uh, what His Holiness mentioned actually that remembrance of Allah is the key to this, uh, meaning the key to treating a lot of illnesses, not just mental illness, illnesses. Uh, we, we have heard so many stories and um, there's so many accounts of even physical illnesses being treated uh, merely by the grace of God, merely through prayers. Um, a small example, uh, there's a couple who went to His Holiness to meet him and tell him that the doctors have said that uh, their child, which is to be born, is going to have such and such disease and illness and problems that it might be like his life will be like not worth living. So uh, the doctors recommended that they should, you know, it would be better for the child not to be born. Uh, his Holiness said that, don't worry, these doctors don't know about uh, the power of prayer. I will pray for your child. And now uh, this is actually a child of uh, one of my friends and he is almost six, seven years old. He is fit. He is excelling his uh, studies. He like It turned out completely the opposite of what the doctors had suggested and only through prayers. Even the doctors were um, shocked that we don't know how this happened, how this was possible. So the remembrance of Allah is not just something, um, you know, a, a, a fairy tale or something. These are true incidences which which take place, which happen all the time. You just need to look at it. And that was it from us today. Thank you for listening in. Uh, thank you for um, uh, for, for uh, to the production, to the uh, tech team helping us uh, running this program. Uh, thank you for the listeners for listening in, joining us. And also a great thank you to the guests who joined us and uh, broke down uh, these complicated terms and difficult um, scientific things to understand for us. Uh, so it would be 
easy for us to understand. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Join us again next week. Um, we have a show every every day, Monday to Friday, seven to nine, and also a drive time show at four o'clock. Tune in again, and thank you very much for joining us. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.